Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. Happy 4th of July, right? Why not be mad? I mean, yeah. I'm just tapping into my New England heritage and dreaming of dumping crates of tea into Boston Harbor, except in this case, it would be like dropping anything into the Hudson River. Drop kicking some people into the water and hopefully watching them drown. That would be nice too. I'd be down for that. I feel like I'm at the point where I'd be like watching them drown and then I'd be riding on a scorecard. Three. Not very good. I'm not convincing. I didn't care less. I don't feel like you're actually drowning. I need to feel it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. So, cheers. Yeah. Welcome to today's episode where it's the Saturday before 4th of July, and we just don't care about 4th of July because what's there to, what independence is there to celebrate? There's not much. There isn't. We didn't we didn't answer that question because there isn't a good answer there. Yeah. So we're allowed to talk for now. <laughs> for now, yeah. yeah. Um and that's about it. Yes. Actually, like, yeah, because our last podcast episode came out before this like we we recorded it before the Supreme Court made all those decisions because there were a ton. They've been just making things up as they go along and it's been extremely worrisome in several ways mm-hmm. i mean because i know we are very much speaking and have been speaking about the overturn of roe versus wade uh, which i had me see the in all last weekend yeah. um, and i'm still there and it's i mm, issues um you guys know how we feel about abortion we've done a podcast episode about this before but they've also managed to do a lot more damage and they've already talked about the other damage that they want to cause, which is insane because that's not what they're supposed to be doing. No. They're overreaching their role in the government for the people. And the fact that our government right now isn't like doing anything about that, like checks and balances wise, is horrifying. So if anyone is listening that's not American, we do have some people that listen from out of the country. The best way that I can explain what's happening, if you remember watching Captain America the Winter Soldier, and you remember when Hydra infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D., and like everyone that Cap thought was a good guy was secretly a bad guy, that is what's happening right now. It's that Hydra has fully infiltrated the U.S. government, and they are just doing everything possible to undermine the government, the constitution, and do whatever the heck they want because they can and no one's going to stop them. So yeah, that's that's pretty much where we're at. Yeah. Hydra mm-hmm. has infiltrated and not even the fun like Hail Hydra kind of way <laughs> that I like to joke about when I go to like Megacon and like comic book conventions, but in the like, oh dear God, this is terrible kind of way. We're in trouble. We are going to die. And it's, yeah, that kind of way. At this point, we're mostly, like, just a mess of emotions rather than actually being able to, like, speak about this, at least in my case. So we won't be doing a whole podcast episode about it, but we hope you guys are hanging in there. I will say that last weekend, even though it was horrible, 
horrible, horrible timing to have Roe v. Wade being overturned. Saturday, no, not Saturday, Sunday last week, I went to Pride in New York City. Yes. And it was like utopia. Like every day should be like a Pride parade. I don't know how to explain it other than like everyone truly takes care of one another at Pride. Mm -hmm. Like the little section of the parade that I was standing in, we were all taking care of one another. It was hot AF. And like there were girls behind me that were like, passing out and like another group of girls near us were like here take water take water take all of these things like go stand in the shade we'll hold your spot I had someone that was really short standing next to me so I had her like come up right in front of me so she could see like these people in the crowd that she really wanted to see and like Mm -hmm. everyone is just supportive and loving and uplifting at pride and the greatest part of everything was watching the Planned Parenthood group go by and literally everyone was cheering for them and like so supportive and we all were yelling abort the court (laughs) um like everyone was there were a couple people with those signs and like it was just such a good uplifting celebratory experience even though like all of that crap happened the week prior It was so nice to just be in that environment where everyone really like was showing that they not only care about one another, but that they support one another and that they're going to speak up for one another. If you've never been to a Pride event before, I highly recommend going because it is truly what the world should be like. Amen to that. It is a good example of like the acceptance and the love and the charity that we should feel and direct towards one another. It was great. All right, so let's get into corrections corner. Yes. So I had two things that I wanted to bring up for corrections corner today. The first one is how old was President Hinckley? <laughs> because, or like when was he born? Uh-huh. Because it was tripping me up so badly thinking about President Hinckley being a grown ass man in 1935 and oh. then still being the prophet through like the early 2000s. Yeah. Like it just did not compute for me for some reason so i had to look it up i had to look up how old he was specifically when he died and then how old he was in 1935 when he was appointed to be on the radio publicity and mission literature committee mm -hmm. he was born in june 1910 he would have been 25 when he was appointed to that committee oh wow so he was an adult yes like a YSA, <laughs> aka to society, because he also didn't marry Marjorie until 1937, so two years later. Yes. So he truly was a menace to society <laughs> at 25 being a single That's man. That's funny. Huh. And then he died in January 2008, which would have made him 98 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. That's so, crazy. Yeah. I don't know why my brain immediately went to like 1935. He had to have been like in his 30s or something. Like my brain was like, he's a real like grown ass adult man. No, he was 25, but still an adult. Yeah. And that's still kind of young, but like that's also like makes it more clear. Like he really did spend his entire lifetime basically in the church departments and that was his career. So yeah, which is crazy goodness so the other thing that i wanted to clarify was i was calling the movie i am green flake 
when in reality, the actual title of the movie is his name is Green Flake. So I wanted to clarify that. It's not an I am legend sort of moment. It is his name is Green Flake. Oh, wait, I had a third one. I didn't realize this one. Oh, whoops. So the third one, you had asked if Pride and Prejudice went into theaters, the pink Bible Pride and Prejudice. Okay. And? According to the internet, to Google, the film was released in select theaters in Utah (laughs) in December 2003, and then it was released to DVD in November 2004. Good stuff. Okay. Good to know. There we go. Good to know. Okay, so I wanted to share mine. Um, uh, so we talked last week about whether or not the actor Noah Danby from the Book of Mormon movie, Volume 1, not that there was any other volumes, um, if he really did convert to the gospel. And as far as I could find, there was nothing. It was just a rumor that got passed around my wars and my sakes back in San Diego. You, you got to love those. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> um, honestly, and another faith-promoting story strikes again. Th- yeah, that, no, that's a perfect example. And actually, um, I did want to share a quick quote reference um, from Affirmation.org. Affirmation is an organization for and by um, the queer community for LDS members and everything. So they've done a, a lot of good, from my understanding. Um, and they did a quote about this a while back. And it says, queer as folk, actor Noah Danby has a role to play that is large and satire, but this time he will keep his clothes on. <laughs> I, I had to share once I heard that. <laughs> so it says that Danby will star as Nephi in the Book of Mormon movie to be released in a few weeks. The beautiful 632... He, they gave us away. The beautiful 6'3", 224-pound Canadian actor has a CV that includes roles in a Hollywood movie such as The Skulls and The Tuxedo. He has also played two roles in the gay-themed miniseries Queer as Folk as Tattoo in episode 105 where he appears in the nude and as Captain Astro in episode 111. How does Danby feel about playing the part of Nephi? And then we've got his quote, I was more excited than anything else. And the more I learned about him, the more I grew to love him with all my heart. With Nephi, everything fell into place effortlessly because I truly believe that he and I are kindred spirits. They're both large in stature. They they are. So (laughs) good for them doing things with their lives. Um, And good for Danby. Like, I didn't expect to see the CV that he had because he's done Career as Folk. He's done some of those. He's had, like, small roles in movies. He did, you know, the Book of Mormon movie. So he's had quite a bit of stuff. Um, so it's, like, really cool to see. So, yeah, just some fun facts about him. But as far as I could find, there's no reference of him ever converting to the LDS church. Cool. We are thrilled to be new members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dialogue, Dialogue is a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion into all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. You can support our podcast and others in the network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com. Subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. You can learn more at dialoguejournal.com. So check it out. All right, so that was our corrections corner for this week. If we miss anything, you guys, just let us know. And in the meantime, we are moving on to today's super exciting and semi-depressing episode on anti-intellectualism. Yeah. 
So based on all that is happening in the world right now, as well as a frequent theme that we've seen in many of our episodes as of recent and other podcasts as well, we wanted to talk about a topic we've poked at but have not directly addressed for a full episode, which is anti-intellectualism. It's kind of perfect for this week with Independence Day happening. You guys will listen to it after, but still. Again, we'll celebrate Independence Day when there's actually some independence to be had. Amen. For now, let's talk about what is anti-intellectualism, because that's a mouthful. It and we need to know more. It sure is. Yeah, so we will be diving into quite a bit of it today. Um, what it is, why people support it, um, how it plays into religion, and so on. But we're going to start with some of our favorite definitions, because those are very useful. So as termed by Wikipedia, anti-intellectualism is hostility to and mistrust of intellect, intellectuals, and intellectualism, commonly expressed as deprecation of education and philosophy and the dismissal of art, literature, and science as impractical, politically motivated, and even contemptible human pursuits. Oh my gosh, I just made that mental connection. You know, whenever people say like, what are you going to school for? Oh, you're going to school for theater? Why don't you do something that will actually get you a real job? That is anti-intellectualism at its finest. You will get that a lot, especially like when you're diving into a degree that doesn't have like a direct purpose and requires more about, it's more about like the, the idea of thinking and conceptualize and, con- and concepts other than like an actual job, like engineering goes to engineers. That's very clear cut. Philosophy. Philosophy. Yeah. (laughs) What are you going to do with that? So yeah, you can do a lot. You can do a lot with that. You can do a lot with theater. You can do a lot with a liberal arts degree. Like there is a lot to do. Uh, Capitalism doesn't really support um, things that don't go directly from. Yeah. Clear path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Then I also pulled out some of an article from understanding anti-intellectualism in the U S it's on studio. A-T-A-O. I, I couldn't find it on the site if you're supposed to say it or spell it out. So it's just A-T-A-O. And so this was written by Edric Kwong, Jenny Dorsey, Claire Mosseller, Emily Chen, and edited by Leslie Tellez, Zandy Brockett, Hannah Seabright, and his last updated last June. I'm going to give them credit there. In their article, Understanding Anti-Intellectualism in the U.S., They reference it as a social attitude that systematically undermines science-based facts, academic and institutional authorities, and the pursuit of theory and knowledge, which I really like their definition because it's just, it's a little easier to understand and to visualize and to utilize. And then they kind of defend their definition by saying that it is important to note that anti-intellectualism is not so much a school of thought, but rather a composite of related strategies to uphold certain ideas and systems put forward by those in power, such as um, creationism or the belief that the universe and living organisms originated from divine creation. As such, its tactics are not confined to members of a certain group, although they may be more prevalent in some. Going off of that a little bit, I found a scholarly article available on nature.com that's titled Anti-Intellectualism and the Mass Public's Response to the COVID-19 Pandemic by authors Eric Merkley and Peter John Lowen. Now, granted, this article completely focuses on anti-intellectualism in the case of COVID-19. It's very skewed in that direction, but it is very fascinating how they are able to break down anti-intellectualism and make it like more digestible for the common man by using COVID-19 as like the prime example in this article. So in 
this article, Eric Merkley and Peter John Lowen analyzed the general public's disengagement with experts and scientists during the pandemic and why it seemed like it was downplayed so much in the United States. They said, quote, anti-intellectualism, which again is the generalized distrust of experts and intellectuals, has played a powerful role in shaping the public's reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic above and beyond this concept's association with ideological conservatism. People tend to be persuaded by speakers they see as knowledgeable, that is, experts, but only when they perceive the existence of common interests. Some groups of citizens, such as ideological conservatives, populists, religious fundamentalists, and the like, may see experts as threatening to their social identities. Consequently, they will be less amenable to expert messages even in times of crisis, end quote. So basically, if it doesn't fit your social identity, you'll be harder pressed to accept information from intellectuals or experts and quicker to dismiss this information even during a time of crisis, which is literally what we've seen over the last three years. But I'll go further and say that we can see this from the last six years from when Trump first got into office to where we are today. Yeah, that's definitely where like politics really became more of everybody's identity and it became a lot more clear. But definitely we've had issues with this like throughout all time because while we can definitely see that change um, regarding the pandemic that we're in, you can see that through past pandemics as well. You can see that um, from the bird flu, SARS. and What was that last really bad one? Oh gosh, like early 20th century started with a p polio polio yes thank you yes sorry yes we all know how the polio epidemic went for like the main part we all know like people like need to get shots and today we understand that there was a problem and then we got it fixed and then people like still suffered like those who are like overcoming that and so on we get that but what we don't really look into is that they did have people who were against thinking that polio was a real problem that there are people like, no, you don't need this. You don't need to do this kind of medical attention. You don't need to do this and that and that. And like people still suffer because of that, but we don't study that as much because we know that the polio issue is mostly, mainly very much over. And so we like, we don't think about like how wrong some people were in the past because we're focused on like what happened right, which is fair because we don't always have a ton of time to educate ourselves on every element of the past, but like clearly when we don't, history will continue to repeat itself, and it's not a problem. Anyways, so we know that every region does face some sort of anti-intellectualism, particularly when it does come to addressing science. Um, and this is region as well as religion. So like whether it's like how old the world is, you know, 6,000 versus 6 million years old, or whether essential oils can solve cancer, which they can't, we find ourselves often turning to our higher power to answer the questions we may only be able to hypothesize or use our higher power as a reference when we are certain our questions can't be answered in this lifetime. Like, we're not always willing to turn to actual experts to figure things out. Or do research. Yeah, they'll say, okay, well, I didn't, I got this from my higher power. Like, I just need to pray about this more and I need to fast some more. Or they'll just say, my higher power isn't giving me any answers, so this is clearly something I'm not supposed to know or care about kind of thing. They're all not good excuses. Beyond just being a factor in religion, there are quite a few experts who also point out the severe anti-intellectualism within America, which we're not surprised about. No, we see it every freaking day, everywhere we, we do. go. Yeah, and for those who are heavily invested in 
their country, it's important that we understand that America is not known to the outside world for our intelligence. <laughs> this isn't this isn't even like an opinion. <laughs> this is fact. <laughs> like you can read up about what other countries are saying about us. And they're just like, why are the Americans so stupid? Why are they so far behind? Why do we have all these uh, lists of like, okay, here's the smartest kids in the world. Like here's like where the kids are doing the best in these. Like here's where, you know, like the best communities are. There's all these things. And we're never towards the top of the list. We're never, not for health, not for knowledge, not for anything like that. Like we're, we're, we're terrible at educating our youth. Like every time I go abroad, people are correcting me on things that I grew up believing, whether I was homeschooled or public school, like depending on like what I learned. And I'm still like, I thought I was doing better and I'm still clearly not that smart at this. It's a constant thing that we're working on. And like, I was just reading up on like some things like where like people were like legitimately discussing like, okay, here's these things with America. Everyone knows how bad we're at for languages because we don't actually have a national language. We just kind of like expected to speak English, but it's not the national language. And you're kind of expected to take other languages in school, but like, it's not really required. We're not good at doing that. And then we're also very, we're also apparently famously bad at geography. Yeah, we are. Most Americans can't even tell you what all of the 50 states are. So like, that's just embarrassing. Yeah, it's very messy. And it's not just that it's like, it's kind of funny to us and problematic and just not knowing stuff, but it also interferes with our ability to understand other people and to care for them. And so this results in a lot of very extreme xenophobia that we face towards anyone who doesn't look like a typical typical American, which I'm gonna put in quotations because there's no such thing as a typical American. And, and that's whether we're in our country or whether we're abroad, because American tourists have a bad rep in, near, in just about every country. And there is a reason for that. So yeah, we're not, we're not known for being smart. We're not known for like good social cues. We're not good for our knowledge or tests or anything. We're not seen as very intelligent. We're just the big kid on the playground who's got a lot of power. We're, we're that meme of the guy getting a medal and like celebrating and then you look and he's like in 10th place. Like, <laughs> no, that's that's apt. Yeah. Very apt. So this also stems from historians, doctors, everyone really in and out of the country. But specifically, Americans are like the worst about this. A prime example of anti-intellectualism that I find perfectly fitting is the Salem witch trials. We all know that there are multiple TikToks and memes of... It's usually a guy that puts a towel on his head to pretend to be a woman who will like discover something like an apple on a stick and he'll be like, look, I can carry an apple this way and eat it. And the dude will be like, a witch, burn her. And like all of that nonsense. And it's hilarious, but it stems from actual truth. Mm -hmm. So in 1642, there is a book, which you can actually find online. Um, It's about a thousand pages. It's called the pouring out of the seven vials. And in it, John Cotton, who was a puritanical clergyman in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, said, quote, The more learned and witty you be, the more fit to act for Satan you will be. I say, be not deceived by these pompous, empty shows and fair representations of goodly condition before the eyes of flesh and blood. Be not taken with the applause of these persons, end quote. So essentially, 
we can see that anti-intellectualism was going strong and well in the American colonies from the beginning, literally 20 years after dropping into oh, America. Man. Oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah. Yet that's not surprising. No. Oh my gosh. But I just found that quote funny because this quote shows a very disgusting reflection of what we're looking at right now in our country where people think that if you're more learned or more educated, more focused on like finding actual credible resources for research, then they will say that you're less godly and you are going to be taken away from the light of God or whatever it might be. It's very much seen as a binary. You can either listen to science or you can listen to your God. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if God created the world, then science supports God. Yeah. It's a beautiful mesh of gray. So yeah, so let's go ahead and dive in a little bit more about um, why people do it and why it's still so prevalent today. So... Back in that article on nature.com, it says, quote, most explanations for resistance to scientific and expert consensus focus on the directional motivation of individuals. People may reflexively reject scientific and expert consensus when it is in tension with their worldviews, ideological beliefs, or even partisanship. The mistrust can have a number of different sources, but foremost among them is populism. Some populists see experts as a class of elites who exercise power over virtuous ordinary citizens, and historically, there is some link between populism and anti-intellectualism. There are almost certainly other traits that fuel anti-intellectual sentiment, such as ideological conservatism and partisanship, intuitionism, and religious fundamentalism. Other psychological traits and predispositions also appear to have particular relevance in shaping COVID-19 risk perceptions. Ideological conservatism, that's a hard word to say, ideological conservatism appears to predict COVID-19 attitudes cross-nationally, especially in Canada and the United States, as does one's level of science literacy, need for cognition, and proclivity towards conspiratorial thinking. A lesson from these conflicting theoretical and empirical accounts is that we should not explicitly or implicitly build a source of anti-intellectualism into a definition of the concept or into its measurement, but rather rely on the fact that anti-intellectuals will consistently display mistrust in a wide range of experts and intellectuals, end quote. So I know that was a lot to get through. Getting heavy here. And even though this article focuses on the connection between anti-intellectualism and the COVID-19 response, it does highlight the fact that anti-intellectualism can come from multiple sources, can come from different worldviews, different motivations of individuals, and multiple other traits. I find it particularly interesting that the greatest link mentioned was populism. So populism, for those of you that don't know what that is, it is a range of political stances that strives to appeal to the ideas of the common people who feel like their ideas and their experiences have been largely ignored by the elite. So when someone, I don't know, like a president perhaps says, hey, this is just some lie being shared by the mainstream media to keep you down to a huge group of people who have had enough of being in whatever terrible situation they've been in, they'll all band together and propel those ideas that have no foundation in research or truth, just the words of some random person who is echoing the way that they've already felt for years and years and years. 
Then, because they've already delved so deeply into this rabbit hole, it's easier for them to stay blinded by the misinformation than to accept and admit that they have been deceived. Cue the mental gymnastics now to justify whatever they're thinking. Yep. It's crazy how a big lie can affect communities no matter the time and place. Mm -hmm. Quite a problem. It's very interesting, though, because even though anti-intellectualism has been around for centuries, Wikipedia brought up a possible origin for naming anti-intellectualism in the U.S. in 2001. It said, in the U.S., the American conservative economist Thomas Sowell argued for distinctions between unreasonable and reasonable wariness of intellectuals and their influence upon the institutions of a society. In defining intellectuals as people whose occupations deal primarily with ideas, they are different from people whose work is a practical application of ideas. That cause for layman mistrust lies in the intellectuals and competence outside their fields of expertise. Although having great working knowledge in their specialist fields, when compared to other professions and occupations, the intellectuals of society face little discouragement against speaking authoritatively beyond their field of formal expertise and thus are unlikely to face responsibility for the social and practical consequences of their errors. Hence, a physician is judged competent by the effective treatment of the sickness of a patient, yet might face a medical malpractice lawsuit should the treatment harm the patient. In contrast, a tenured university professor is unlikely to be judged competent or incompetent by the effectiveness of his or her intellectualism, their ideas, and thus not face responsibility for the social and practical consequences of the implementation of the ideas. In the book, Intellectuals in Society, written in 2009, Sowell said, by encouraging or even requiring students to take stands where they have neither the knowledge nor the intellectual training to seriously examine the complex issues, teachers promote the expression of unsubstantiated opinions, the venting of uninformed emotions, and the habit of acting on those opinions and emotions while ignoring or dismissing opposing views without having either the intellectual equipment or the personal experience to weigh one view against another in any serious way. Oh, that was good. It's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. So let's, let's translate this for you. Basically, the common person who may or may not have had access to or the desire to seek higher education believes that they know more about the plight of society because they are living, breathing, and working in it daily. Their experience, quote-unquote experience, makes them feel like they know more about life than the people whose primary focus in life is a field of specialization. For example, how often did we hear or read about regular people's hot takes about what was in the COVID-19 vaccine and how effective it was more than an actual virologist whose job was to study the SARS-CoV-2 virus? for years and create a vaccine for it. How often do we hear about parents who are worrying about critical race theory being taught in schools, but they can't actually define what it is, nor can they define what aspects of history being taught in school classifies as critical race theory? If you think that you're a free thinker and you're not a sheep because you won't do research, listen to experts' opinions and findings, or find answers to your questions through a source other than Facebook, I hate to break it to you, but you're not really a free thinker. You are actually 
an anti-intellectual doing mental gymnastics to twist reality to fit your narrative. And while it would be nice to live in a fantasy realm that fits our narrative, eventually you have to wake up and realize that the world is on fire and using your brain could actually help stop the fire. Well said. That's all it takes. I think because we all have access to the internet these days is that we like to say, yeah, I can definitely research this because there is a lot we can research, but we actually don't know how to put in the critical thinking skills to apply them into our research. So what we're doing is we're going to Facebook or we're going to Google and just typing in a question. And then we're going to be looking at the first two sources and just basing our opinions off what is said there without looking at the support that those claims have. Maybe it's a blog, for example. Maybe it's your favorite radio show, but you're not actually checking to confirm, okay, is this actually said, you know, if it's a medically related topic, is this said by a doctor? What kind of doctor? Do they still have their license to practice medicine? Where are they pulling their knowledge? Is there, are their sources reliable? And you have to put in a lot of effort in order to make a real opinion, a real educated opinion. It is not something you can do in an hour or I personally, in my opinion, not even like a single day. It takes time and dedication to actually do. And I don't think we're really doing that. I recently saw a thread on Twitter that showed a woman who had found this like random tweet that was like some senator said something about the environmental protection agency that, you know, random terrible quote. So they were like, okay, well, who created the tweet? So they clicked on the account and they said, oh, there's a link in there. Okay, let's look at the link. And they clicked on the link in the bio and they realized that it was some real estate company account who had generated this quote. And they were like, okay, well, let's actually look at this real estate company. So they delve into the company a little bit and find out that it's really just one random dude who created a fake business account on Twitter to make him seem more legit and to pass his half-baked views and opinions on Twitter as like actual fact. It just spiraled from there. So it literally just took this woman like four clicks to find out that whatever this person tweeted was not accurate. If you're not willing to do those four clicks, you are never going to find real information on the internet. That's true. Easiest thing to do is to just look at who actually wrote this. Like, if it's a meme, you probably don't need to read the meme and, like, get into it too deeply. But if it's a quote about something that's happening in the world or, like, news or something, you should definitely do those four clicks and find out where it's coming from. Right. Well, yeah, and then, like, there's a really... I will have to find the account or something. But um, the New York Times is considered usually a pretty decent source. However, they have a serious issue with propaganda in their articles. And there's actually one reporter who doesn't work with them, I believe. See, like, I don't even know all the information, but they continuously bring up issues and they do like lengthy Twitter threads explaining like, okay, here's the claim that they are making here. And here are the sources for their quotes. As you can see, all these people who are sharing these quotes are like either are working within the police force or are related to them in some kind of role, like a police commissioner kind of person, or they're even like other sources are still psychiatrists for the cops and so on. So they're all closely connected. So the only thing you're really going to be able to hear about anything going on about cops is it's all going to be positive because it is literally the cop community saying all these things and that's it. So of course they're going to want to talk good about themselves. Um, so like I have been like relying, as you can see on someone else who's saying these things, but they're giving me enough information off that I can 
once I actually put in the time and effort, I can actually start looking that up myself to solidify their claims and go from there. And that's something that we should be looking into doing ourselves on a regular basis because the news does get complicated. But one thing we could be doing is going to the matters that we find most important and going to those articles and learning about, okay, who's writing them? What is their goal that they're trying to get across? And who are they talking to to get this? Are they talking to the right people? Should they be talking to other people? And so on. Otherwise, we're just getting caught up in these ideas and we're not always going to be able to listen to the right people. Anyways, so what are the consequences of allowing yourself to swirl even further down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, personal opinions founded on absolutely nothing other than social media hot takes, and refusing to do the research through credible sources? Because there's going to be some. There's going to be some consequences. We've already mentioned a little bit like the xenophobia, which causes all the problems. But we're going we're gonna to go ahead and name a few more, some huge ones that we find that are very big, glaring red flags. So the first consequence is a need for different forms and methods of communication. So back to that same Nature article or Nature.com article about anti-intellectualism and the COVID-19 response, it says, quote, A large literature has shown that anxiety triggered by national crises such as terrorist attacks and pandemics increase information seeking among ordinary citizens. Moreover, such anxiety generates engagement with threatening information. People tend to learn about politics from top-down communication through the news media or horizontally through their discussion networks. The upshot is that anti-intellectuals are less likely not only to accept expert information, but also to opt into important streams of information compared with more trusting individuals, even if they do not explicitly avoid such information. Relaying information from experts is unlikely to be of use in persuading these individuals, even in times of crisis. Other communication strategies are often needed, end quote. So what I like about this one is that we know that most information is going to do that top-down communication from the news media, like the people that are breaking those stories and it filters down to us. And then similarly, there's that horizontal communications through your discussion networks, which would be like your friends, social media, like the people that you are in regular contact with. So you'll be like, oh, I heard this, I read this new article that came top down and then I'm sharing it with a friend, horizontal. In anti-intellectual cases, it's mostly just going to be horizontal communication. So they're going to say, I heard that the COVID-19 vaccine, for example, can give you infertility and cause cancer. Just a thought that some random person had and shared it with five other people. And they all said, well, there was an article somewhere about it. I'm sure there was because no one would just make that up, even though, yeah, they did. They totally made that up. In times like this, we need to have different forms and methods of communication to make sure that credible sources are being shared. So in this case, you have to go horizontal and then back up vertical. So you have to like challenge the horizontal communication and say, okay, well, can you give me a source on that? And people will be like, well, I'm sure I can find one and be like, okay, I'll wait. I will wait for you to find that source. And when they can't find it, be like, okay, maybe you should stop spreading that information because this is not working you're spreading misinformation at this point. So you almost have to flip the traditional communication strategy and do it backwards. All right, so the next consequence that we want to mention and kind of the biggest one that we're facing today is history repeating itself. If we are not learning from our mistakes, we are doomed to repeat them. That is just how it is. 
So at the beginning of our episode, I referenced the article Understanding Anti-Intellectualism in the U.S. That article traces the roots of anti-intellectualism back to the evangelical Protestantism of America's first European settlers. It says, since the 18th century, as evangelicalism emerged in contrast to the Catholic Church and Church of England, anti-education rhetoric became a common response in institutionalized evangelical settings. I do not read any book, said influential evangelist preacher Dwight Moody, unless it will help me understand the Bible. What? Yeah. Dude. Yep. Dude. Yep. Ah, yep. Okay. <laughs> That's scary. Yep. Um, okay. The article continues by the 1960s, this divide between intellect and intelligence evolved into a culture war between the new left and the first wave of neoconservatism. Irving Kristol, known as the godfather of neoconservatism, claimed his culture war to be a reaction against the left's nihilistic revolt against conventional morality and religion. He and other neoconservatives criticized the women's liberation, civil rights, and anti-war movements as not only personal grievances, but antithetical to American patriotism, an idea that prevails still today. Neoconservatives rallied behind the state as setting the moral religious compass for society and indeed the world. In this view, capitalism was suffering under a new class of intellects defined as everyone from scientists and teachers to journalists, psychologists, and social workers who wanted the power to shape our civilization, often by giving it to the government, instead of allowing it to reside in the free market. They argued that corporate businessmen built their social standing with their own efforts and deserved to reap its benefits, furthering the false ideal of meritocracy which still persists in the U.S. today. Some have taken their views to the extreme, firmly believing that all knowledge is relative. This notion by some that there can be multiple ways of knowing has reduced science to opinions, or today alternative facts, and has allowed political and capitalist agendas to selectively weaponize science for their own agendas, while simultaneously calling into question the validity of the scientific method it isn't that awful it's like really hard personally to read because i know exactly what is being said here because i know it so well like this puts so many things into like language that i needed yeah this is horrible yeah that explains it so perfectly this is so bad it's infuriating it's sucks yeah because i mean religious groups are like no there's no such thing as moral relativism but they'll definitely go into the whole play of like knowledge relativism and that's super messy and honestly like i'm feeling like kind of dumb right now because i'm struggling over all these hard words these big words they're not hard words they're big words right now i apologize i mean i i struggled (laughs) too so don't feel bad about it neoconservatism is a very challenging word to say (laughs) It is. And like, yeah, like this is good. I am going to like have to hold on to this, you guys, because yeah, it's really been like about reducing science to opinions and alternative facts because everyone's like, there could be more knowledge out there because, you know, we believe in faith. We believe in other science possibilities. So you don't have to follow the mainstream because the mainstream is dangerous and the leftists are in control of it. And half the time, leftists, they're using knowledge to base their beliefs. The right is using religion. Like, that's what the main difference is. And that's where we run into a lot of issues 
and danger of people getting hurt and dying when they shouldn't and losing rights and so on. Knowledge is not relative. Do you remember when alternative facts used to just be falsehoods and lies? Alternative facts did not exist before 2016. It was not a thing because before 2016, people used their mother effing brains and said, that's not true. But now people are doing mental gymnastics every freaking day of their lives because we let a master manipulator take over the White House and now the entire government that had checks and balances to ensure hostile takeovers like this doesn't happen has completely happened again like hydra in freaking (laughs) captain america winter soldier we are living the plot of captain america right now and i'm not okay with this because there is no real captain america that's coming to save us there is not nope and the fact is like and i know all the excuses that people use they're like, oh, Ivanka wouldn't say that against her dad. That must have been a clone. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, you can't trust this resource. Like, who who really does know what knowledge is anymore? Who, who really decides on what's working? And after all, half of our science really is based on hypotheses that we technically can't prove. And everyone's just willing to make any kind of argument if it does not immediately fit into their expectations of what is going on in reality. So for those of you that haven't seen that video, we'll explain it really briefly and then we'll move on. But basically one of Trevor Noah's team members went to a Trump convention, essentially, and was just asking people if they had been watching the January 6th hearings. 90% of them were like, no, I haven't seen it. And no, I don't want to watch it. He showed a clip of Ivanka Trump saying that she believes that what her father was saying about the election being stolen was false live on national television and it was also like in reference to um bar what he was saying as well so ivanka believed bar who said that this is all wrong like we can't do this and ivanka was agreeing with him yeah so basically against her father yes And the person that saw this clip was asked, what do you think about this clip? And the guy said, I don't know if that actually is Ivanka Trump. That doesn't really look like her. Maybe it's one of the Ivanka clones that's out there speaking for her. I can't. I cannot with the mental gymnastics. (laughs) And the correspondent like also like goes into this detail and it's like, oh, so you immediately come up with an idea that will fit your idea of what's going on because you can't fathom that it could be anything different. Because when you get so stuck in some way of thinking, you have a very hard time being willing to see anything else. And so that's what those mental gymnastics are. It's like, okay, Ivanka would never go against her father. So this can't be true. Whereas Ivanka never going against her father, that's not necessarily a fact that's an opinion and like opinions can get changed because that happened she did she said that on tv she said that in a court case so you have to be willing to change your opinion in those types of situations we're not seeing that happen with a lot of people and here's the thing like i'm going to give people enough grace to say that you don't even have to tell me that you were wrong You don't need to go on an apology tour and say that I was wrong and I was looking at incorrect sources this whole time and then like state when you've changed your opinion. 
you can just quietly change your opinion and move forward. Like, I will give you that kind of grace in case you didn't know that it existed already, where you do not have to do an apology tour and tell everyone in the world that you were previously wrong. Like, you can just learn something new, change your opinion, and change your behavior, and move forward. Yeah. We're meant to keep learning and to keep growing. Our opinions are meant to change in some way and time. Our knowledge is supposed to continue to keep growing, especially as more knowledge in the world continues to come out, as more studies are done, as more science is, I don't want to say like discovered, but like kind of discovered and and learned about and everything. Like there's still so much for us to keep educating ourselves on. And as we educate ourselves, our opinions are bound to change in one form or another. And that is the healthy thing to do. I will say, though, because I know that there's someone screaming in the background like, no, you should apologize for your bad behavior in the past. Yes, you should. However, when you are just learning all of these things that you were once previously so devoted to is completely wrong, you are not ready to make that sort of apology tour. And that is okay. Like You can take time necessary to continue to learn, change your opinions, and to move forward. There will come a time in the future where you are finally ready to acknowledge the fact that you were so wrong for so long and start that apology tour. That will naturally happen in the future. But right at the beginning when you're first learning where you were wrong and how wrong you were, take that time to just change your opinion and move forward. You can address those things when you've gotten to the mental headspace and the intellectual headspace where you are able to make those apologies. Yeah. And then, I mean, you'll just be able to apply that to your life as you continue to move forward. And especially because it's not going to like, you won't just like, you know, read five books and 10 studies and then you're going to know everything and then you'll be perfect. It's a constant learning situation. Like I just had a really serious and helpful conversation with a friend this past week because I'd forgotten something and I misstepped in something that I shared and that they were like okay actually you, you kind of missed a really big point and that was kind of hurtful and I was like you are absolutely correct I know where I went wrong I'm sorry I need to educate myself better you shouldn't have had to point this out to me but I do appreciate it and that's what we need to continuously do and educating ourselves and better learning on how to help each other out and use that knowledge in our lives Okay, so we've talked about what anti-intellectualism is. We've kind of talked about like the consequences that it has in our society and how it's impacting us today. Now we want to dive in a little bit deeper about particular issues on when it comes to our faith. I think we've already made a bit of a blanket statement about like different religions. This isn't just an LDS issue. Like it's not just Mormons who are making mistakes. It's just the whole concept of like having a faith in something that is not scientifically proven. And then you tend to focus more on that than actual science. And like I said, it doesn't need to be a binary. So like each faith must face their own issues when it comes to dealing with anti-intellectualism. And I'm sure that we've all at some point heard something ridiculous that someone in the church or any church has said that just doesn't make sense that you necessarily can't really prove wrong, but it's still being shared and people are kind of listening to it. And that causes more problems. Even if it doesn't have super big consequences, it's still a concern. And so the issue there isn't necessarily just about correcting people. It's ensuring accurate information to the best of our abilities so that we can better confront and live in the world around us. 
A basic example would be in regard to our personal health. When we spoke about MLMs a few episodes ago, we addressed how often essential oil companies have been sued for their outrageous and unproven, key being unproven, claims about oils fixing chronic illness and cancers and autism. Those are huge claims and they're very hurtful. While we like to believe in miracles, essential oils are not proven to actually fix anything in our bodies. Whereas countless medications have been proven to offer much needed solutions and aid for ourselves. And the fact that people are willing to just go off ideas and personal beliefs more than using what science is there to help us endangers lives on a very regular basis. Speaking of that, let's talk about some weird beliefs that we have heard recently or in the past that people take very seriously, which are just mindless opinions, really. They're not based in anything. And the thing is, there's no proof for them and they can't really be proven, which is the thing that people rely on to keep these false beliefs that end up causing more harm than anything else. So let's dive into some of them. Okay, so first off, the world is only 6,000 years old. It's just because of like, I, I don't even like know like the true basis for like where this belief is, but I hear it all the time. Like everyone's like, there's no way that the world is a million years old kind of thing. This is my favorite one. <laughs> the dinosaurs died in the flood. How? Have you not heard of that? <laughs> I... Mormons gonna morm. That's all I'm gonna say with that one because they just have to fit everything into the context of like the scriptures they do yeah and that's not the case <laughs> yes yeah actually no that's a super good point like if it's not in the scriptures then you can't like trust it basically if you can't relate it in some way which is the weirdest thing i mean i get that we can use our scriptures for almost anything but that's not really the context of like their use or anything i also really like the theory that the dinosaurs weren't actually real and that the bones that were found in the earth are because when Jesus created the earth, he pulled matter together from different planets. And so the dinosaur bones that we see in the ground are from are remnants from other planets. The dinosaurs are aliens. Yeah. Okay. That's another one of my favorite weird beliefs. All right. Then um, some other super religious issues. Black indigenous people of color were less righteous in the pre-mortal life. We had that going around in the LDS church a lot. And I do believe like that's played a part in other faiths as well. Um, if they believed in like a pre-mortal world or salvation in the next one kind of thing. So that's extremely harmful and allows for a lot of racism, which does lead to um, racism just leads to all the problems. Let's put it that way. If there's not proper equality, um, within our society, it's going to have problems and people will die because of it. And the next one is that men should rule over women, which is unfortunately happening again today. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. We don't um, need to go into this. Any, no. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, next one is that a late term abortion is essentially someone putting a knife um, up a eight month pregnant woman's body to kill the baby and then scrape it out i've heard this so much gosh I i've can't. i mean like knife isn't like technically like the wep the weapon like those unquote. gigantic scissor things basically yeah, yeah. that's what that's how I've everyone visualizes it yeah 
Late-term abortions are a very particular kind of medical procedure that very few people really understand. And it gets weaponized. The idea gets weaponized constantly. No one in politics really understands what a late-term abortion is. And that's caused a lot of problems, meaning that the women who, or the people with uteruses who need a late-term abortion in order to stay alive will not be able to get them because no one understands that they are medically necessary. 10 out of 10 times, it's because the baby is either already dead in the womb or can cause death in the person carrying the baby. Either one. It's not just for funsies. Or because you get to that point in your pregnancy and you're like, I'm tired of this. Let's get rid of the baby. <laughs> That's not <laughs> what happens. not what happens ever at all. Ugh. No. Okay. The next one is that at six weeks, a baby has a heartbeat, which I don't honestly know. I'm going to say that's completely false because it just sounds ridiculous, but I don't feel like that's right. Yeah. Because you're still just a cluster of cells that early. So they do get considered a fetal heartbeat, but it's like not really heartbeat because they don't really have organs then. I mean, we can always like get some more information on this, but a fetal heartbeat technically is not the beating of a fetus. It's like an ultrasound can detect like a flutter and the area that will become a heart but like at six weeks they don't really have an organ okay um so the next one is <laughs> that capitalism will exist in the new world after christ's second coming i don't think we need to go into this any further we've talked about some of our topics for this before there will be no need for capitalism I mean, in general, there isn't one as it is. Um, and there definitely won't be a need for one at, like when Christ is here. No, because the law of consecration is essentially socialism. But whatever. Y'all ain't ready to hear that yet. The next one is that women cannot access the priesthood power, which we know is completely false. Yeah, we have access to it and we can receive blessings from it. Next one is... The women taking their husband's names um, and marriage is parallel to taking Christ's name upon ourselves. Ew. No, thank you. No. Also, we take Christ's name upon ourselves when we get baptized on our own. Another one is horse medicine will cure coronavirus. Was it ivermectin? Mm-hmm. I think. Um, horse dewormer, specifically. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good thing. Um, yeah, they've been able to do studies since it was very prevalent in the first, what, 18 months of the pandemic that people started using it. Um, and they've been able to say that it doesn't do anything to improve or technically worsen, I think, um, COVID or its, or its symptoms in a person's body. Next one is that Antifa is a militant left-wing group out to destroy our country. Kaylee, what does Antifa stand for? Or what is it shortened for? Antifa stands for anti-fascism, Tracy. It is a way of thinking. So people that are anti-Antifa are really pro-fascism. That's basically what they want you to know. Yes. This is a binary, actually, in this certain situation. You're either pro fa you can say it that way if you want to be <laughs> super cool. Or you're anti-fa. You've got two options. It's pro-fascism or not 
It is a mode of thinking. So when people say I am Antifa, they are saying I am anti-fascist. I am not interested in having fascism in my life or my country. And Antifa is not an organized group by any means. It's not like the Proud Boys. Yeah. And the last one is that Donald Trump is a righteous, God-fearing man, and he's possibly the savior of the United States. I haven't heard that part, but it's like very close, uh, especially based on the QAnon theories that like go around and everything. So um, that he will stop the blood-sucking Democrats elite. Listen, how I choose to get my iron for the day is none of your business, okay? <laughs> none of your business. Yeah. So, yeah, this is not the first time for us to be con- to consider or be aware about anti-intellectualism within faith. Um, it's been there since the beginning. And it's also interesting in our research that Mormonism, like, has been seen as fundamentally foolish, essentially, like, from the beginning. And I think that this is one of the reasons why we specifically ignore the label um, and other intellectuals today, because from the beginning, they're everyone's like Mormons are crazy Mormons don't make any sense and so we've built up that thick skin for that particular issue and being like okay yeah we don't support intellectuals and we don't support intelligence either and we don't need to because we're peculiar people Kaylee that's why yes we are who needs intelligence when you can be peculiar (laughs) Uh, (laughs) oh gosh okay so but I did pull a very interesting article Written by David Bitten, he wrote Anti-Intellectualism in Mormon History, um, and that was put into Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, Volume 1, Number 3, so way back in the beginning, 1966. And so he kind of goes back and forth and showing like where we've like been represented like well and where we've like not been represented well. I've got a lot to share here. He started out with, almost from its beginning, Mormonism was disparaged as fundamentally superstitious and irrational, with an appeal only for the poor and and uneducated. Even before the description of Joseph Smith as ignorant and illiterate by the residents of Palmyra and the denunciation of Mormon beliefs as subversive of human reason by those dubious judges, the old settlers of Jackson County, the stereotype was established of a lowbrow irrational religion. This image was consciously promulgated, especially by the Protestant clergy, and became the standard view of Mormonism in the public opinion of the 19th century. If the term anti-intellectual had then been current, it doubtless would have been added to similar epithets used to describe the Mormon delusion. It's super crazy. So on the whole, Mormons did not relish being portrayed as obsessive and simpletons, which is fair. Um, So Bitten wrote, soon they were calling attention to passages in their scriptures, which praised intelligence, thought, and the pursuit of knowledge, pointing with pride to the schools they established and citing statistics of literacy and school attendance. This anti-image did not become widely accepted in the 19th century, and even today, the older stereotypes persist. The fact of the matter is that Mormonism, like Western society in general, has an ambivalent attitude towards intellect. Ayo! All sad. All sad. Still the same. Nothing's changed. So we started in the beginning with Joseph Smith, who was pretty well known for not being super educated or anything. But Mormonism did play on some like kind of logical-ish points in the beginning. Um, They didn't always like go with the flow regarding current Christian beliefs, for example, like the Holy Trinity. 
So like it changed in a few ways. So it's very interesting to see like how unintelligent that they were considered based on some of the um, ideas that were coming about within the, the new faith as it would have been seen at the same time um, since this was the restoration. So Bitten wrote, Mormonism was also close to rationalism in its attitude toward science. For one thing, it did not retain the traditional dichotomy of spirit and matter. All things were material, although differing in density. God was not conceived as pure mind without spatial extension, nor did he call the material world into existence from nothing. Closely connected with this forthright materialism was the belief in eternal laws of cause and effect. Laws of nature were held to be not derived from God, but inherent in the cosmos. It was by using them that deity worked out of the divine purposes. Rejecting the deist conception of an absentee God, Mormonism regarded divine activity in the mundane dimension of space and time, not as an intervention, but as a consequence of spiritual laws of cause and effect. Miracles were explained as the operation of laws not yet fathomed by human science. Once you understood the whole picture, everything would seem perfectly natural, perfectly scientific. So I thought that piece was like extremely fascinating because like in some ways, like we have pieced together some belief that does make sense and does coexist with science. And it's interesting to see how much it played a part in the beginning um, with the restoration and how things have definitely changed since then. Then he goes on and he says that the vast difference between human and divine knowledge was recognized, of course, but Mormon leaders seem to have had little doubt that scientific conclusions were correct as far as they went, that scientific laws were firmly established, and that Mormonism and science were tending in the same direction, which is very interesting because that's not how we see things, um, and that's not how everyone else was seeing them at the time. So they were seen as foolish for believing things like science. So how has that changed? I think that's just insane. And especially because Ben does address that within the faith, early Mormons saw evidence. Like they were like buying up parchment about like old scripture and everything. They're buying up relics. They wanted more proof. They wanted tangible, concrete proof that they could hold in their hands and document and say, hey, like we've got this. We've got this religion. We've got this faith. And we have the proof that showcases we are correct here. And at the time, as they continued like their efforts and everything were and work and work to establish their own community, it was seen as un-American. Mormonism really does get seen as American, even though it's a very much a global um, religion as it should be, but it gets caught up in these ideals um, of what we believe America is or what other people believe America is. Um, so it's really interesting how the essay says that when we couldn't consider the early Mormons to truly be a scientific people, they were determined to find knowledge and they did want to use science at the time. They wanted to find knowledge and create the world that they wanted to and not just find what they had around them. It was a lot of like give and take through the years to get to where we are today. It was it was just like really interesting to be able to read this article. And honestly, I, I've only gotten like three fourths of the way like through that with all my quotes. I just couldn't share everything. But I did want to share this last lengthy quote um, to give us some more thought and perspective on how we've kind of changed our mindset um, regarding anti-intellectualism and how we now perceive capitalism and everything now. Okay, so Bitten wrote, it was natural that the church concerned itself with the problems faced by young people growing up in an age of automobiles, pursuing higher education, 
moving to the cities and marching off to war. A new morality was sweeping the country, and to doubt the faith of the fathers was becoming ever more fashionable. As they girded up their loins to fight cigarettes, whiskey, gambling, high hemlines, suggestive new dances, shocking novels, and ideas contrary to the Bible, interpreted literally at the time, Mormons again found themselves shoulder to shoulder with the Protestant fundamentalists of rural America. And on the other side were those devils, the intellectuals who were writing realistic plays, experimental poetry, and stream of consciousness novels with an uninhibited freedom of subject and frankness of language. It was intellectuals who were applying higher criticism to the Bible and coming up with conclusions which did not sound at all like that old-time religion. It was intellectuals who were purveying and distorting the teachings of Sigmund Freud as meaning anything goes. It was intellectuals who were concluding with Franz Boas and other cultural anthropologists that ideas and values were relative to one's culture. And it was intellectuals who were teaching at the colleges and universities from which parents sometimes saw their children return worldly wise and skeptical. Wow, that sounds just like today. Oh my gosh, right? Sounds so familiar. We should never have sent you off to that college because you came back liberal. Yeah, um, which is a very perfect example of anti-intellectualism and like what happens. Once you start learning about more things, you're bound to learn the facts and change your opinions. So now that we are feeling pretty miserable at the end of this episode, um, as we're <laughs> beginning our slow wrap up, let's consider what we can actually control in the face of anti-intellectualism. So while we know that we cannot fix everything, we can work on countering some behavior in our congregations, in our workplaces, with our loved ones. And we can do this by having a clear awareness of what's actually going on. So we have a list of four tips. And the first tip that we would like to give you is critical thinking. We've already talked about this a lot today and we've talked about it in the past. We know that it's not really seen as something that you should do in the church because we really tend to focus on church-only resources when you're a member of the church um, and faith, but we are inviting you, Kaylee and I are inviting you to think critically about the things that are being said around you. Think about whether or not they are founded in anything other than someone's half-baked opinion. Think about the things you're being taught. Where are these resources coming from? Just use your brains. Right. Who is saying it? Why are they saying it? Who does it benefit? What resources are they using to support their claims? And does it make enough sense to warrant being accepted as truth during that conversation? And some of this then follows into step number two, learning for yourself. So it's easy to argue on anything, um, but you do need to, you need to learn things for yourself. You can stand on the shoulders of someone else and echo what they say. You can use that horizontal line and use other people's information, um, whether you're pulling it off social media from your parents or from a church leader. But we do need to learn for ourselves. We need to go to those resources. We need to understand that knowledge requires time and effort and research. We have to take the time to actually get an understanding for ourselves and not just listen to what they're saying on your news stations or your entertainment entertainment stations. Thank you, Fox News. And go to reliable resources and learn for ourselves what's going on. 
And not only just in turning to reliable resources, we have to know how to track them down and understand how to piece that knowledge together instead of using assumptions. So the next one is listening to others. This part we all struggle with because it is not easy and it's not always fun to listen to other people and where their opinions come from, especially when they directly contradict yours. However, listening to people can give you the opportunity to learn why someone believes the way that they do. Usually, they don't know any better. They haven't learned anything. They're just parroting what their parents are saying or what their church is saying or what their closest inner circle is saying. There's a good chance that they haven't even thought about it that much. So if you want to have a conversation with them, and I mean a conversation, not a debate, it's important to understand where they started with this idea so that you know where to go from there. It's very easy to make assumptions, but it's important to learn to listen And I think going along with this is that if you really want to be able to teach someone else something, a correct principle, you need to learn to love them and care about them. So if you're going to learn to love them and care about them, you can automatically do that by listening to them first. Hear what their thoughts are, hear what their opinions are, hear what their background is like, and then you can go from there and build off of that foundation that they've given you. Um, yeah, that's no, that's really well said. I like that foundation element. Just arguing at someone is going to be like talking to a brick wall the whole time. What you can better do is ask some questions about why they believe what they believe, where they heard that story from, what sort resources they've used, what research they've really done in their own time, and understand better how they think and how they've been operating on this belief and how it's impacted themselves as well as the people in their lives. And the more that we do by listening, we can understand what they really want, who they really support, who they really care about. And we can kind of go from there and better than, you know, making that connection. And so then number four is to discuss kindly. So as you listen, you can learn to ask the right questions on why they believe that something, why, how they believe it and what it means to them. Some people are going to have outlandish beliefs and maybe they have a personal experience that explains it, or maybe they're just basing it off someone's story that they don't really know any well and they haven't thought to question it yet as you discuss things with them as you listen to them you can learn help them learn about reliable resources there is no perfect guarantee here everybody does make mistakes there are resources we should trust and others we should be skeptical about and that's important for us to consider for ourselves as well as for the people around us and by inviting them to reconsider things and being kind about it, we're much more likely to get them to understand our perspective as well. You can talk for days, but it doesn't mean you're going to be able to convince them, unfortunately. Um, and you can't slap them into believing you or anything. Like, you've done what you can. Um, the best you can do is use the knowledge that you've gained in talking to that person and see if that's changed any of your opinions, uh, apply that to what you know about your facts, and then kind of move on. Ultimately, you can't force anyone to change or to learn anything. But we do encourage you to correct people when they do make mistakes in public. We're not saying like you need to like stand up um, and shout, no, this is wrong. That's how it is. But when possible, we invite you to find a way to speak up and address it as needed. 
So we're not here to recommend arguments, but if you hear something in elders form in Rose Society, you should be able, willing, and ready to speak up, to discuss what you know and say, okay, is this your opinion or is this a fact? Where are your facts coming from? Let's explore this before we move on, because I want to better understand what you're talking about and see what basis this has in our faith in this discussion. Let's see if it warrants this truth, this opinion, or if you're basing this off false facts that we can then change and help everyone to learn a little bit better. Although if you are in Relief Society or Elders Quorum or what have you, and someone says something that's blatantly racist or xenophobic, you can just say, that's actually a racist belief and it's not founded in anything. You can just call it out like you see it. I would also like to point out that there are times where you will not be able to discuss something kindly with someone. For example, if someone is actively attacking you on social media or in person and like trying to start a fight with you and calling you horrible names, just ignore the conversation. Walk away from it. You don't have to say anything. Believe it or not, you will not be able to discuss anything kindly with them because they are starting a fight. Halfway through the fight, when they realize that they're wrong, they will say, why are you fighting with me? Why are you picking me? I came here to have a polite discussion, blah, blah, blah. And it just, it will never work out. It will turn into gaslighting. Then you'll feel guilty and confused and angry. And it's really not worth it. So you can block them at any time and just go, have them go away, disappear. Sometimes it is not possible to discuss things kindly. Those are times where you should walk away. However, I am not good at this. It is something that I need to actively work on. It takes some time to learn, like yes. when, when, to know when to walk away. I'm just sure. saying that if someone is coming to me to fight with me, I'm going to fight. I'm not going to be turn the other cheek and be kind. Like, I'm a fight. You came to start this fight. I'm going to end it. One of us is going to walk away crying and it's probably going to be you. <laughs> you can choose to walk away. I need to do better about walking away. There are times where discussing kindly will not work. Block is better, mm -hmm. but I enjoy making people cry. If you're in the mood, go for it. <laughs> I'm always in the mood. Well said. So as we jump into our conclusion, um, I want to share one final piece from Bitten's essay in, with dialogue. He wrote, recognizing that the church will always be composed of mostly non-intellectuals, <laughs> um, I'm leave that part out. <laughs> but we, are, we are left with the question what after all is the place of the intellectual in the church there is no place for us there we have to make a place there currently isn't one not really um not when we've got two big conferences every year telling us to rely on faith and prayer for everything we need to be applying our knowledge and wisdom the rest of the year. But also that our personal revelation is meaningless. That's, you know, the other <laughs> thing that they tell us at conference too. Also true. If um, your personal revelation contradicts that of the prophet, are you really getting personal revelation? Bitch, sh shut up. Shut up. You don't know yeah. my relationship with Jesus. Shut up. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I just don't know where to take this any longer because we have to be able to do something. We need to have knowledge as well as like faith and the gospel. But then, yeah, we are being told like, oh, no, you're wrong in general conference after we've got personal revelation on it. And then they're like, yeah, rely 
on this on the Bible sometimes, uh, which isn't factually correct for the majority of it. And then they're like, no, don't believe the scientists. You guys don't believe the scientists. Don't believe the scientists. How do we live a life without believing science? I will say this, though. So I don't know if I've shared this story on the podcast or not. So I'll just share it again. In my ward in New Jersey, there is one of the Sunday school teachers. She talked about her experience with dealing with segregation and the priesthood ban. She said that from a young age, she felt like it was so incredibly wrong. And she prayed about it and she received personal revelation that it was in fact wrong and that that's not what the Lord's will was whatsoever to have this priesthood ban in effect. And she was like, okay, so I have this personal revelation. I know that this is wrong. I know in my heart that it's wrong. I'm, she's like, I'm just going to push forward and see if it'll change one day in the future. When the official declaration happened in 1978 that reversed the priesthood ban, she said that she felt the strongest spiritual impression that she was like, everything that I had felt before, that spiritual, that personal revelation that I had had years and years and years prior about this was reaffirmed in that moment when the priesthood ban was lifted. When I think about anti-intellectualism in the church. And I think about how we are told frequently now, apparently in the last couple of years, that our personal revelation is does not trump the prophet's revelation. I think about what her experience was and how she felt so strongly that the priesthood ban was incorrect. And she had personal revelation that confirmed that. And then it was doubly, triply, quadruply confirmed when the priesthood ban was lifted in 1978. So for us, I feel like we need to hold on to that space where we are trusting the revelation that we're receiving from our Heavenly Father and that we are relying on science, the knowledge that the world has to offer that education has to offer everything else. And we need to hold on to it with our whole hearts because that is the only way we're going to be able to carve out that space for intellectuals and intellectualism within the church. If we want to see the church progress and change and improve over time, there have to be people in it still that want to see that change happen and are pushing to see that change happen. And so even though it sucks, like 90% of the time to be those people that want to see that change happen. We need to be there for one another to be able to make this change happen. I really like that. And I think that's really important that we need to consider everything that comes our way, take into consideration and then question it. And that does include from our prophets, the revelation that they bring us. That includes the scriptures. We need to question things and learn these things for ourselves. That's how we're going to make any progress and gain any intelligence and I really like that story because it's a reminder, like things can be different. And if we still stay connected though, like in the church, like we can be the ones to help bring about the change. We can be the ones asking the questions, um, asking our leaders to start reconsidering certain things and using our voices to, to help affect change. Because as we've discussed today, anti-intellectualism is a real thing and it is a real danger. Our school systems are continuing to fracture 
our government is fracturing in the United States, and we cannot use that as an excuse to stay naive or pretend like it's not happening. We are really just hurting ourselves and the people around us when we do that. When we lean into anti-intellectualism, we are letting that happen. Hopefully, our discussion today hasn't completely depressed you. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. crossed. We've gone on a couple of rants and... I'm sure there will be more. (laughs) I'm sure there will be more after I hit stop on the recording. But we hope that you will take time to question your beliefs, question your understandings of the world around you, and encourage others to do the same. We need to be those people that stop anti intellectualism. We need to do it by working as an individual. So, like we've talked about for the last few years on this podcast, it takes one person at one time to start making those changes. And if that one person is just you changing your own opinions and growing and improving from there, you've already changed a lot. You've already made a huge difference. Amen to that. Yeah, we've got so many incredible resources in the world. The internet has given us access to incredible scholars There are great scholars of faith who are constantly learning in in the sciences and history and more as well. There is a ton of LDS-related conferences that go on every year with people learning more about the gospel and learning to apply um, worldly elements um, and and like better understanding how our religion plays into everything. Like there's a lot that's constantly going on, and that's just within our personal faith. There's other things that are going in through different faiths, and there's constantly new knowledge being found out and discovered in this current day and age. We need these voices, and we need to have our own voices involved in within the church, so that we are continuously creating change and helping others as well. So. Thank you guys for joining us today. We know that it was a lot and we hope that it helped you learn something new today and helped you to feel inspired to do something. Next week, we have another heavy episode, but it'll be a good time regardless. Yeah. Kaylee just gave me a look like, oh, dear God, why did we do this? (laughs) What have we done? (laughs) We landed accordingly. (laughs) Oh, my God. So thanks for joining us this week, guys. We will see you all next week. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye.